Indeed, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would bring light now into our hearts, that you would bring that inward sight, that truth that only you can bring. Lord, would you then cause the comfortable brother or sister to boast in our humiliation and the lowly brother or sister to boast in our exaltation, even as you spoke through the words of your servant James. Take my words now, Lord, and let them be for us a word of encouragement. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning's gospel lesson from Mark chapter 12 shows us two different kinds of living, two different ways of approaching God by juxtaposing two different kinds of people. Jesus condemns the one group of people for their faithlessness, and then he commends the second person for the fullness of her faith. The scribes were one of the groups of religious leaders in Jesus' day. They were legal experts who wrote binding legal documents, and they were called to teach, interpret, and enforce the Mosaic laws that were found in Scripture. Throughout our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, we have already seen the scribes, along with the Pharisees and even the Sadducees, other groups of leaders, test Jesus. We saw this especially in last week's passage. They have questioned him, and they have also rejected his authority. And at this point in the Gospel, we know that they are already plotting to take Jesus' life. Interestingly enough, though, Jesus does not condemn them for what he knows they will do to him. No, rather, he condemns their pride. The scribes are ostentatious, peacocks on parade, loving the attention and social prominence that their religious role has brought to them. They knew scripture well, and they reveled in being at the top of the class. Their sin of pride, shown in that love of outward show and empty glory of religious life, was matched by their sin of covetousness, in their love of money and their exploitation of the poor. The scribes appeared to be righteous. They had an outer show of obedience to the law, but their hearts and their pernicious actions showed them to be hypocrites. You probably know this, but the word hypocrite derives from the Greek word for actor, which doesn't seem to make sense until you learn that in ancient Greek theater, actors always wore a mask. The actor was called to interpret from behind, playing perhaps the role of joy, even if their own face could not shake the sadness that they might feel. The scribes put on a show of obedience that masked their rebel hearts. Thinking of the scribes, I cannot help but think of one of my own beloved family members. In fact, the patriarch on my father's side. I have permission to tell this story Grandpapa has been dead for a few years now, um, and his children have given me permission. He was really a lovable scoundrel. Um, That was the best word, phrase to describe him. And we had to ask at the end of his life, how did he get that way? And in looking back at his life, we think we might know. Well, my grandfather was the son of my great-grandfather, who was a successful corporate accountant and gentleman farmer in western Massachusetts. My great-grandfather had this wonderful business that um, was doing really well. It was probably the best CPA business in New England at the time. And so Grandpapa was, of course, the heir 
um, both to his father's personal wealth and also to this incredible business that was doing so well. He had gone, he had gotten a law degree, he was an expert in corporate tax law, and he would be the inheritor of the business. Well, his father's addiction to gambling got the better of him. Gramps sold the business out from under his own son. And then he died very suddenly and without a penny to his name. My grandfather's expectations were dashed. He had been living a different kind of life, and he now had to change the way he lived. He was a young, successful man and a father of four, and he was lost without what he thought he would inherit. And that was the beginning of his sense of entitlement. Over the decades, Grandpapa continued practicing corporate tax law, and he led Bible study and youth group in his home where my parents met. He even got ordained within the charismatic Episcopal Church. When I was a child, he was retired living on Nantucket Island and leading a church plant in his home that was made up of little old ladies, many of whom were also his clients. Well, when I was in high school, his living came around to catch up with him, and he got caught for doing what he'd probably been doing for a long time. He got caught for embezzling funds from the estates of those little old ladies. Thankfully, his age kept him from going to prison. We were shocked as a family, and yet in some ways not surprised. He was, in fact, a scoundrel, a lovable scoundrel. His unethical behavior derived from that attitude of entitlement. His need, his lost inheritance, was something he had never fully grieved. He had repressed that grief and that denial. He lived in that denial of his own need, and so it allowed him to justify what he did. While the scribes felt entitled, their unethical behavior stemmed from their denial of their need. They believed they were self-made men. In fact, you could say that all of the self words could be used to describe them. Self-important, self-reliant, full of unrealistic self-esteem, which led to being self-righteous, self-intoxicated, and even self-indulgent. Jesus condemns the scribes. But their sin itself brings its own built-in punishment. They are deaf and blind and dumb to the truth that they need God just as much as anyone else. They They are imprisoned by their delusion and their denial about who they really are. So there are the scribes, strong in their own strength, and they're juxtaposed here in Mark 12 with the most weak and vulnerable kind of person in ancient society, the person that they are accused of exploiting. There Jesus and his disciples sat in the court of the temple where the treasury was located. Worshippers came into that place to give their gifts of gold and silver coins that would support the upkeep of the temple. And they would step up to these large trumpet-shaped chests, and they would drop their coins into the very showy mouth of this trumpet. Everyone could see who was giving and exactly how much they were giving. I imagine all those coins made a lot of noise clinking down into the chests. Jesus sees all of that that everyone else sees, the ostentation, but he also sees into the very heart of the woman who gave two tiny copper coins, coins that were smaller than the nail on my pinky finger, 
coins that amounted together to less than a penny, a minuscule fraction of the recommended temple tax. We know that widows were notoriously vulnerable and impoverished in biblical times. We could even say today we recognize that when when a woman's husband dies, she could be open to financial ruin. But back then there was no social security, no retirement funds, no life insurance, no retirement communities. Women were not really able to work and provide for their own income. Therefore, widows who were left without funds upon their husband's death were completely dependent upon the kindness of others and the miraculous provision of the Lord. And the Lord did make provision for these ladies in his law, commanding his people not to mistreat widows and orphans, and even to provide for them through their tithes and by leaving the edges of their fields unharvested. And the widows would come and then glean the grain or the grapes for their own food. In absence of his people's obedience to his laws, and they, we know they didn't obey them, the prophets called them to task for failing to obey this uh, command of the Lord. The Lord promises that he himself will miraculously provide food, clothing, and even justice for the widows. And throughout scripture, we see examples of widows who are living by faith, like Tamar in Genesis, Ruth and Naomi, the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings, which was our first lesson for today, and the true widows that Paul describes to the young Timothy as those who have set their hope on God, continuing in supplication day and night. Well, the widow here in Mark chapter 12 not only lives by faith, but she gives by faith. She trusts that somehow in God's economy, her two cents were still worth giving, even though they seemed like such a negligible gift, a drop in the bucket compared with the gift of those giving out of the excess in their budget. I guess you could say that there would be an analogy, a biblical analogy, to describe the way the widow lived. We would call it wilderness living. Because way back, long before Jesus' day, when the people of Israel had come out of slavery in Egypt and the Lord had allowed them to be poised right there to end their wandering and enter into the promised land, the Lord reminded them in Deuteronomy chapter 29, 5, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. I would say, looking back, I certainly have experienced a kind of wilderness living, a modern kind of wilderness living. When I was um, in Massachusetts, when I was church planting, I had, um, many of you know, I'd left uh, college and I went straight to New York to become a starving artist. And then from there, I went on to become a starving student, sort of, and um, in a sense. And then from there, I'd expected and hoped to be able to um, pay off some debts and live uh, off of an income, perhaps a salary even, maybe with benefits. And that was not forthcoming. And as I was praying about it, I recall my father saying, well, you could always go and plant a church. And I said, no, I don't think so. And then when the right opportunity came, I recall saying to my father, I could go and wait tables. It would be great. And I could live off of that. They wouldn't even have to pay me. It was so clearly the right opportunity that I was able, um, by the grace of God, to desire to go and live in that way. So I really didn't have health insurance um, during 
at least 10 years. And I was earning minimum wage, and then I'd lost that minimum wage job because I wasn't able to do that and do ministry. I could barely make ends meet. It was a hard time, and yet it was also, in a sense, a sweet time. I had to balance my checkbook after every purchase just to make sure I knew exactly what was in my bank account because I had overdrawn it before and I knew I didn't want to incur all the fees if I did that again. So I was so faithful in that regard, far more faithful now, and I was also constantly in prayer. I knew my need so deeply. I knew how deep my need I knew was. I knew how chronic it was. I had to live by faith and rely upon the grace of God and even sometimes the kindness of others. And yet during that whole time, miraculously, my teeth did not get cavities, and I didn't have to buy expensive shoes. I was able to eat and tithe um, and even pay off some student loans. But again, it was a miracle. So when I got to Birmingham, of course, I found myself living in the promised land six years ago when I had my first salary and benefits as an adult. At 33, I was probably far more grateful than another 33-year-old who'd received salary and benefits since college. Wilderness living challenged my faith, making it stronger despite myself, forcing me to realize the depth of my need. My need was so constant and it was so obvious And there was a sweetness to having to rely upon the Lord for so much of my existence. Well, the challenge is, you might not feel like you live in the promised land, but the challenge is to some of the relative comfort that we experience today, um, that I might experience or you might experience, not all of us perhaps, but some of us, the challenges that the promised land brings are less obvious. We're less aware of our deep, chronic need for God. And again, Moses, when the people of Israel were poised to enter the promised land, Moses warned them, saying, Do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Moses warned them because he knew the human heart. He knew that in our relative comfort, we are prone to um, pridefully think that we've earned or deserved the good things that God has allowed to come our way. We forget, we deny our need before him, and then we miss out. We miss out on living by grace. A church historian in the 80s uh, took a phrase, borrowed a phrase from the newspaper, borrowed a phrase that was used in the newspaper in 1902 to describe uh, the Christian life and to describe really what God does to people's hearts when they come in contact with him. And I think it's helpful. Many other Christians have repeated it over the years, so forgive me for that. But I find that it accurately depicts what Jesus does here. Jesus, in his ministry to us, seeks to afflict the comfortable, hear the scribe, and comfort the afflicted, like the widow. And I would go even further to say that he seeks to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, and then go on to comfort those whom he has afflicted. God's law afflicts our comfortable self-reliance and self-righteousness. Knowing our need can come about from any of the aspects of our lives, not just our financial need. We might be poor in abilities, poor in relationships, poor in physical health, poor in righteousness. In fact, every one of us is poor in righteousness, of course. As we are humbled by the realization of our need, like the widow, God comforts us then with the gospel of his abounding grace, mercy, and loving rescue. Seeing our poverty 
causes us to sing heartily those words from the hymn, Rock of Ages, one of our favorites. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. In just a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table together, and we'll come with our empty hands, open to receive, remembering again all of what we have received from God through Jesus Christ, recognizing that we bring nothing to God but our own need. As Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.